And now for something completely different. Ah! Forget everything you've been told by others before. Get ready for the real deal. The full story. Real talk about money, markets, life. Now, it's The Real Investment Show with Lance Roberts. Presented by RIA Advisors. And good morning and welcome to the show. It is, of course... Thursday, second best day of the week. Michael Leibowitz joining us this morning to talk all about Fed. And of course, well, today is the day, right? This is the day we've been waiting for all week. CPI, we get the inflation report out this morning. Expectations uh, kind of all over the board this morning, but uh, kind of the average is about it looking for a 0.2% increase um, in the headline inflation number and a 0.4% increase in the core number. Uh, but again, like I said, these these estimates are all over the place. Depends on what source you look at. You, you're going to get variations of these numbers. But anyway, uh, it's the all-important number because right now, Fed funds futures are predicting that the Fed will hike interest rates again in November by 75 basis points, and then again in December by 25 basis. Uh, sorry, by 50 basis points. So putting another one and a quarter uh, basis points increase on the Fed funds rate. So now this is an interesting problem, though, that the Fed is now running into. Um, over the course of the last you know, year, as the Fed's been hiking interest rates, there's been a very interesting development that's now occurring within the environment of how the Fed operates. Now, we have to go back and explain a little bit about quantitative easing for a moment and the process of what works with the money. So when the Fed goes out and buys bonds, right? So when we talk about quantitative easing, the Treasury issues debt, right? So as the government wants to spend more money, they want to do the Inflation Reduction Act, whatever it is, and they want to spend another billion dollars. Well, the Treasury has to issue a billion dollars worth of debt to fund those types of programs. Now, and, and the reason I say it's a billion is because all current tax revenue that comes in is absorbed by simply Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, and, and current interest on the debt. Now, this was already at over 100 cents on the dollar before the Fed started this rate hike campaign they've been on now you know, for the last year. So again, any new spending, right? Any new bill that comes along, any new function that they want to spend money on now requires more debt to be issued. Okay, so now the treasury issues the bonds, right? And then so the primary dealers around the, around the world, there's 20 primary dealers. These are the big major banks, right? Bank of America, Goldman Sachs, et cetera. They then buy the bonds from the treasury. So the treasury has a group of dealers. They sell the bonds to their dealers. The dealers then sell those bonds to their customers or to pension funds or whoever else they're going to send it to. Now, that's the way it normally works. Well, beginning in 2009, the Federal Reserve began doing what's called quantitative easing. And this is where the Federal Reserve buys the bonds, the Treasury bonds, from the banks. So if uh, Bank of America is an example, or JP Morgan sitting on you know, $100 million worth of a certain maturity of a 10-year Treasury, the Federal Reserve will buy that bond from JP Morgan, Bank of America, whoever, and then credit their reserve account with the money. So now the bank has the money, and supposedly the bank's supposed to lend that money out into the economy, and, and you know that allows businesses to have access to capital. They then go invest that capital, grow the economy. That's the way it's supposed to work. <laughs> Didn't really work that way. But 
the, the Federal Reserve now owns the bonds. Now, here's the interesting part about this. Now, now this is kind of a long-winded way to get to where we are going to talk about quantitative tightening. As when, when the interest payments are made, the Treasury, Reserve, the Treasury makes the interest payments on the debt, right? So, so if, I'm own, if I own a 10-year Treasury at 4%, the Treasury remits to me a check every, you know, twice a year for my 4% interest. Well, that Treasury issues the coupon payment that goes to the Federal Reserve because they own the debt, right? Now, at the end of the year, the Federal Reserve remits those interest payments back to the Treasury. So the Treasury has an interest expense on the books of sending out those interest payments. They then get revenue back from the Federal Reserve as the Federal Reserve remits those net profits back to the Treasury. So it's, it's been an interesting loop because the Treasury for the last decade, because of basically zero interest rates, have been actually getting revenue from the Federal Reserve remitted back to them. And this is, you know, this is $30, $40 billion a year, so it's not, not inconsequential. Here's the interesting problem that's now developed because of the increase in rates. There is now a deficit. Because the Federal Reserve has been shortening the duration and the maturities on their balance sheet, they are now having to remit out more money than they're actually bringing in. So there's a net deficit to this. And in order to do that, it requires more debt issuance. So as interest rates go up, that net deficit continues to increase. That, and, and this is now causing a, a problem because now we're having to issue more debt to cover that net differential in the interest payment. So again, this is going to because the, the Federal Reserve is paying out interest on the overnight reserves held by banks. So all those reserves that we've been putting out for the banks over the course of the last decade, it's roughly about $500 million a year right now in terms of interest payments. Um, it's increasing rapidly because of this. So now this net differential is requiring more debt to be issued. And you know this is gonna become more problematic the further that interest rates continue to go up, just increasing the debt even more. So this is gonna be one of the interesting problems that the Fed runs into with quantitative tightening is now further increasing the deficit, increasing the debt run, which also impedes economic growth. It's, it goes back to that deflationary cycle that we've been in. So again, just a very interesting problem that's showing up because of quantitative tightening. And again, doesn't really mean anything other than it's just now requiring more debt to be issued. Um, but this morning, talking about inflation, of course, this is going to be the big thing. Expectations are right now that, uh, again, inflation rate is going to come down to about 8.1% this morning. Of course, yesterday, uh, the producer price index came in a little bit hotter than expected. So, again, markets kind of struggled a bit yesterday. But the big concern is today is that markets are sitting on support at these recent lows. They've been kind of holding in here over the last couple of days. Kind of everybody just kind of waiting for the CPI report. So today is either going to be a, a big move down if that number comes in a whole lot hotter than expected, or if that number comes in kind of in line or potentially weaker than expected, could see a fairly sharp rally here. Markets are oversold here on a short-term basis on multiple levels. Again, under a lot of pressure here, a good deviation, a good bit of deviation away from the 50-day moving average. And again, as we've talked about before, these moving averages act like a magnet. So uh, as the further that prices move away from those moving averages, the more that those prices want to move back towards eventually, want to move back towards those moving averages. So again, any bit of good news here could lead to a, a, a fairly strong rally. Again, lots of negative sentiment in the markets. 
lots of cash that has been raised and, and again a lot of uh, mutual funds pension funds really out of balance here going into the end of the year so any type of good news here could certainly lead to a fairly strong counter trend rally in the markets but again this is just something to pay attention to today it could be fairly volatile again i have no idea what these CPI numbers are going to look like. And <laughs> it's interesting, nobody else does either. Out of the last 15 reports, economists have been wrong 13 times. So nobody knows what these numbers are going to look like. Um, so we'll see what they, they come out with this morning. Um, one thing is interesting, though, is that this is the last inflation report prior to the midterms. So before we get the next inflation report, we will already have the midterm elections behind us. So again, uh, this is gonna be the last report that voters see before they go to the polls um, as well. So that's all coming up. Uh, the election day is now 25 days away, I believe, uh, 24, 25 days away uh, to midterm elections. So it's all coming down to the wire. Okay, quick break, come back. Got lots of stuff to get into with Michael Leibowitz today uh, from the Fed, FOMC minutes out just recently, talking about more of the same. We'll get into all of that and more right here on The Real Investment Show. Don't go away. Get daily investment news you can use. Delivered at the speed of the internet at realinvestmentadvice.com. Let's go, girls. What do women want when it comes to finances? Join Richard Rosso and Danny Ratliff for a special ladies' edition lunch and learn what women need from Social Security. Thursday, October 20th at noon. Get the most out of your Social Security benefits. Register now at realinvestmentadvice.com for our next ladies' lunch and learn. What women need from Social Security. Thursday. Thursday, October 20th at noon with Ratliff and Rosso, realinvestmentadvice.com. The Real Investment Show. Welcome back to the show this morning. I'm your host, Lance Roberts. Uh, Michael Leewitz joining me as well. Lots of stuff to get into um, over the course of the last week. You know, there's, you know, we, we've talked about before about the risk of financial instability. And, and you know, recently the FOMC minutes came out and, and basically said that the risk was doing too little versus doing too much, right? And so, the Fed still remains focused on this inflation issue is that if they don't if they don't quell inflation, then that's going to be the bigger problem. But of course, the reality is, is that as soon as financial instability becomes a problem, that's a much worse problem economically, socially, etc. than inflation. Right. So when you start losing your house because of, you know, bank, you know, bank defaults, etc., you know, that becomes a much bigger issue than inflation. So, you know, one of the things that Mike and I have both been watching fairly closely is looking for signs of, of financial instability risk. And they're, and they're finally starting to show up here a little bit. Uh, credit risk spreads are starting to show up, you know, starting to rise here a bit. Um, but then uh, just recently, the Bank of England, and we talked a little bit about this last week also, but, you know, the Bank of England, um, the central bank there is now having to buy gilts or, or, or the British bonds to try to bail out pension funds that are now getting margin calls because of these rising interest rates. So this is, you know, kind of that first sign where all of a sudden the central bank is having to step in uh, to try to solve a problem caused by 
higher interest rates. And, and again, we, you know, these are just kind of those early, you know, kind of things, you know, and if you go back to 2008, as a good example of this, Bear Stearns basically failed. They had these big hedge funds that were out there running these kind of uh, subprime mortgage funds, selling them off to pension funds, telling them they're very, very safe investments. Turned out they weren't. So Bear Stearns is going into failure and they get bought out by $2 a share uh, by J.P. Morgan at the time. And then the markets rallied back to all time highs because everybody kind of looked at that event and say, ah, oh, it's a one off event. That'll never happen again. Right. And so but that was that first sign of financial instability starting to show up in the markets. Now, everybody disregarded it at the time and just said it's a one off event. Well, it wasn't. And then, of course, the rest of 2008 becomes history, you know, with the failure of Lehman. So the, the question that we have to kind of watch for is that we're watching Bank of England. It may be that it may be the Bear Stearns event that is starting to suggest that financial instability is coming back into the markets. But anyway, uh, let's get Michael Leibowitz here on the topic as well. Um, so, Mike, you know, Bank of England is, is certainly an issue to watch, but we've also seen some other things kind of going on. Bank, uh, the Bank of Japan having to intervene. Their currency is, is a problem. Um, also, like I said, seeing credit spreads rise here a little bit more. So, you know, financial instability, not yet a problem. And the Fed seems to be ignoring it at the moment. But, you know, what do you think? Well, let's let's zoom out. Let's zoom out and then come back to the Bank of England. There's a much bigger problem, and the problem has exploded since Lehman and Bear over the last 20, 30 years, but even over the last 10 years, and that's debt. There is way too much debt for the income that is needed to pay off that debt. So, so in finance parlance, we've become more over leveraged, which is fine until until the S hits the fan. And that's what we're seeing. So if you consider that the whole world is over leveraged right now, it doesn't take much in the form of higher interest rates to really upset something. And kind of one of the first things we're seeing being upset are pension funds in England. Now, what happened in England is that guilt, gilts, which are, are bonds, they call them guilt, uh, treasury, uh, British treasury bonds, gilts, rose significantly in yield. Pension funds own a lot of bonds. That's how they, that's what they do in the United States. They do it in England. They do that in most places. They tend to own a lot of bonds. But as you know, bonds, gilts, everything else have yielded next to nothing over the last 10 years. So if you're a pension fund and your demands for cash, you know, will be rising over the next 30 years, it's hard to, it's hard to make those payments with you know, one, two, three percent yields. So what they did was they took on leverage. They borrowed money to buy gilts. So they used short-term money, you know, yielding next to nothing. And maybe they bought one, one, two percent yielding gilts. And with that, they were able to generate extra income. And that plan worked great, worked great for 10 years. The problem now is that they're they're losing a lot of money on the bonds they own. Their short-term borrowing costs have spiked. So the arbitrage, the difference between short-term and long-term yields are in some cases negative over there. And now they're getting margin calls. And what a margin call means is that when you borrow and leverage, you have to put up collateral. And when that position that you have borrowed goes against you, you have to put up more collateral. So you have an option. You can either sell the bonds or you can put up more collateral. 
And that's what we've seen over the last two weeks is that two weeks is that British pension funds are now selling bonds because they don't have collateral to put up. And it's not just gilts. They're selling U.S. Treasury bonds and who knows what else they're selling. So, so you know, you let, look let, at let, yeah, let me stop here real quick, because there's a real important point here. This goes back to 2008, too, and, and something that, that we've talked about here recently on the show. Um, but there's an important point here that we need to go back to, you know, because of what's happened over the last decade, which is that, you know, these pension funds and these these big major Wall Street banks, et cetera. And this is, you know, and we talked about this in relation to 2008, the subprime mortgage crisis, is that, you know, everybody had these models. Right. And these models said that in the last thousand years or 100 years or whatever you know, length of data they had, you know, prices never did this or yields never did that or, or whatever. Right. So, you know, they, they built these models that said, OK, we can issue these these debt structures at these rates. And as long as volatility of interest rates don't reach this level or if, as long as something else doesn't occur to this level, these will all pay off. It'll all be fine. And, you know, that's where a lot of these pension funds, to your point, got got into trouble because they're going, well, look, you know, interest rates have been low now for years. They've only been going in one direction for the last 40 years, which has been lower. So I can go borrow this money against the, these treasuries because ultimately treasuries will either stay stable or they're going to go up in price because over the last 50 years, they've never gone from 0% interest to 4.5% interest, you know, in the course of a few months. You know, that, and, and so what happened is with these pension funds, just like happened during the financial crisis, the models broke, and nobody expected these models to break. Well, there's, you know, it's funny you say that, but the Fed stress tests its banks. And it, I don't have the exact numbers, but it's but, exact numbers, but it turns out that they use a rate, an interest rate increase of something like one and a half, maybe 2% over six months or nine months. Mm -hmm. And how will the banks fare in that kind of environment? Well, what we've seen is a three to 4% increase in yields over six, nine months, which is well beyond what they consider their stress test. So, so the, so the question is, why do we care about the U.S. banks when we're talking about British pension funds? Why should I care? Right. We're on the other side of the Atlantic. Who cares? Well, the reason is because those pension funds are using leverage. That means they're borrowing money from someone to buy gilts in this case. Well, that money now it's JP Morgan and it's Bank of America, it's Citi, it's European banks, it's Japanese banks are saying we need more collateral. And those pension funds are trying to raise the collateral. They're trying to do the right thing and and make good on their their promise. But at some point, they're not going to make good. And what we're seeing by the Bank of England is they are stepping in to say, we can't have a pension fund default. We, you know, we can't have the pension fund default. And if you're the Fed or the other central banks, you're saying we can't have a pension fund default because we don't know what that means for our banks. Right. And it, you got a whole domino effect. You know, the pension fund is a huge issue. That's a social potential crisis in England. But that social crisis in England leads to a banking crisis around the world. So this isn't just a Bank of England pension problem. This is a Powell problem. This is a Janet Yellen problem, a Joe Biden problem. 
and the same for other countries around the world. So yeah. there's a lot more to the story than may meet the eye. So yes, we do care about UK pension funds. Yeah. And yes, we do care about gilt yields, even though we may never own a gilt. Right. And look, and it's an important thing because two things happen here. Um, you know, you know, the issue for the way a pension fund works is that you know they have and to your point they have a certain amount of assets and they know with reasonable certainty they go okay I've got this many people that are in my pension and they're going to be retiring on these years and I'm going to have this much withdrawal rate coming out of the pension with the payout stream etc over some period of time and they can forecast that you know with some relative accuracy because of just age and and demographics and those type of things the problem comes this and I've written about this a couple of times on the show uh, and on our website, talking about the pension fund problem that we have here in the U.S., we have a huge underfunded pension problem in the U.S. And the, the, the real issue comes, and these pension funds are huge, by the way. These are billions upon billions upon billions of dollars in these pension funds. The problem comes when this occurs. There's a bunch of people that are real close to retirement or maybe in retirement but still working, so they're not drawing on their pension fund yet. But as soon as the cracks appear and they get become concerned that that pension fund is not going to be able to make good on their pension payments, the first thing they're going to do is retire and start drawing on that pension. And this is kind of like a run on the bank. All of a sudden, those models that the pension fund had saying, OK, I've got this much in assets, I've got this much in leverage, and as long as nothing happens, I can make these payments over this period of time. Well, all of a sudden, all those payments get front loaded. And they have to start trying to meet those payments in a much more rapid schedule than they did before. And that underfunded status problem becomes a major unfunded status problem. And this is going to be one of the real risks here is that if you start getting a contagion in, in just the idea that pension funds may become insolvent, it could cause the insolvency to occur. It's it's almost the same thing with, with a recession, right? Everybody thinks a recession's coming, so they stop spending, which causes a recession, right? So that's that's one of the big risks that you know Mike's talking about, and I think he's absolutely right. We'll come back after the break, uh, pick up with you know talking about why experience in times like these matter, and we'll talk about that when we come back from the break. Don't go away. investment advice blog it's required reading for the informed investor catch it today at realinvestmentadvice.com let's go girls what do women want when it comes to finances join richard rosso and danny ratliff for a special ladies edition lunch and learn what women need from social security thursday october 20th at noon get the most out of your social security benefits register now at realinvestmentadvice.com for our next ladies lunch and learn what women need from Social Security, Thursday, October 20th at noon with Ratliff and Rosso, realinvestmentadvice.com. You're listening to The Real Investment Show. So, uh, Poor Boeing. You know, Boeing has just had just a literal mess with their planes. The 737 MAX, of course, they had that whole issue, you know, with that plane getting investigation, having to ground it for years. 
Aviation blog Flight Global posted a video of the Boeing 747-400. It's the large cargo um, uh, freighter that they that they have, and it's known as the Dreamlifter, right? Because obviously we need we need bigger cargo planes because we all want more crap right delivered to us overnight. So the, if you want it overnight, you need a bigger plane to get all those boxes on there uh, to get them to you. So anyway, they. Uh, did the uh, the flight for it. It's known as the Dream Lifter. And right on takeoff, the landing gear falls off. So, <laughs> you know, just <laughs> you know, just one of those things like, man, come on, Boeing, get it together. <laughs> I wouldn't mind owning your stock if you would stop screwing stuff up. It, it wouldn't be a bad thing. Anyway, just can't make this stuff up. Anyway, um, you know, here, here we are in, in, in an environment, and I think it's interesting. You know, I've been reading, you know, I read a lot of blogs every day, blogs, posts, articles, you, you name it, because I'm always looking for stuff to either write about or discuss here on the show. So, you know, I do a lot of reading. And what's interesting is, is there are a lot, a lot of people writing articles and blogs right now that have never seen a bear market, right? Um, and, and that's, you know, this goes with a lot of journalists out there. They're young. Uh, a lot of these journalists are fairly young, right? Um, you know, when, when we were in 2008, they were still in high school in a lot of cases. So they haven't actually seen and been through a bear market. So they're writing these articles. And, and plus, they don't manage money. You know, they're journalists, right? So they're writing articles about the markets and investing and these type of things. But they actually don't manage money. Uh, they don't run portfolios. They so they haven't been just quote quote unquote. They haven't been in the trenches, right? And, and have been through a period like this. Um, but conversely, there's also a lot of financial experts in the media that have also never seen a bear market and that have never really kind of been through one. And 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 the reason that I, I bring this up is 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 that you know, and we've written about this before is that when you go through a real bear market, and, and look, I'm going to argue with you right now that, look, this market sucked this year. You know, so far, it's not really a bear market. And, and we talked about this yesterday on the show. You know, we're still within a bullish uptrend in the market since 2009. We haven't really broken down. The market, yes, the market's down 23 24% this year. It feels terrible, right? But you go back to 2008 as an example, or the dot-com uh, crash back in 2000. Those were bear markets. Companies are going belly up. You know, WorldCom, Global Crossing. You've seen a lot of people won't even remember these companies that I'm talking about. Mike will, because he was around. But there's a lot of people. Yeah. But most people don't remember Enron, right? That's a faded memory, right? We, you know, I was on the radio in, in 2000 when Enron was going to dust and we were talking about the people, you know, walking out of the building with boxes in their hands, right? And, you know, WorldCom, Global Crossing, Lucent Technologies, all these companies went, fell, you know, failed. And they went out of business. Markets were down 30 40 50%. You know, now that's a bear market. 2008, people are losing their houses, their jobs, their, their livelihoods. You know, the markets are, you know, markets are down 40 50%. That's a bear market. We're having a correction, ladies and gentlemen. We're down about 23, 24% this year. It's been very normal in terms of volatility. There's not, there's, there's, we've not had any big spikes in volatility at this point. I won't say we won't. But so far, this has been a fairly orderly correction in the markets. 
And again, yes, there's absolutely risk of, uh, of what we considered a real bear market. That's where companies are going out of business, you know, unemployment spiking, people are losing their jobs. You know, that's a bear market. We're not there yet. But it's interesting to read these articles from people talking like, oh, this is the worst thing ever. Well, you've never seen a bear market. You've never been in one. And kind of the point here is that, you know, experience is a brutal teacher, right? And you learn a lot through bear markets. But there's a lot of lessons that haven't been learned yet in this bear market. Because if there were, there wouldn't be so many people, you know, begging for a pivot to go buy stocks, right? In bear markets, nobody wants to own anything. And, and this is why, Mike, I wanted to talk a little bit this morning with you about kind of experience. And, and you know, you've, you've been through these before, just like me. And, and there's, there's a big difference between what's going on right now and a real bear market. Yeah. And, Lance, it's not just bear markets, but it's uh, shocking markets, right? The long-term capital crisis, uh, what was going on with uh, European, with Europe, with Spain and Greece potentially defaulting. I mean, mm -hmm. there's other events, long term, uh, you know, the Asian crisis. I, I like I, we, we were talking about this yesterday. I, I told you this would be a good topic because we're old men and we've seen a lot of <laughs> we've seen a lot of both. We've seen bear markets, but we've also seen shocking markets. And I was kind of thinking about it. I'm six months onto my first job in the 90, 91 and I was a trading assistant on a bond uh, trading desk. And this was a room that was long and rectangular and enclosed. And the traders could smoke and we had to wear a suit and tie and jacket all the time. So it's almost like a boxing arena with smoke everywhere. <laughs> and uh, in hindsight, a disgusting atmosphere. But it was amazing to me right out of college. And on every desk are about 20 or 30 of these little TV screens, monitors that are just green and black. The writing's all in green and uh, with a black background. So you can envision this environment. And I'm 21, 22, 23, whatever I was. And it's like six o'clock at night. And there's only a few of us there, seven o'clock, whatever it was. And we learned that uh, Bush was invading Iraq. And I, you know, we look at the screens and again, I'm brand new to this game. We're trading bonds. Bonds are pretty boring so far. I didn't know what a bond was. I was, you know, a year out of college yeah. and all of a sudden, you know, in the futures market, stocks are limit down, bonds are limit up, uh, oil and gold are limit up. And it, it was amazing to me. And I'm asking some of the more experienced guys around me, like what's going on, how, you know, what's going to happen. And you know, it's funny, I look upon that experience now, but th that experience and so many others along the way have helped me put what's going on today into context. And it all feeds on each other. And, you know, Lance and I work with uh, with a, a great kid, Nick. Nick is, what would you say, 25, 26? <laughs> yeah, he's a baby. <laughs> this is his first crisis. Yeah. I, I guess uh, pandemic was. This is kind of the follow up. So, so Nick is incredibly smart, but, but what Nick lacks and what a lot of people lack is something that can't be taught. It's the experience of, of limit up, limit down markets of fear, of crises, of not knowing how a government, how a central bank, how a treasury is going to react to such a, such a unique environment. And, and every one of these crises are unique. How, you know, or, you know, as Lance started, how a bear market trades, 
how how bull market bull markets within bear markets can be vicious. How you you know you can get 10, 20 plus percent rallies in in bear markets, and finding the bottom of a bear market is not so easy. And the fact that bear markets can sell off from very sold off levels. You know, there's these traits that you get used to in these boring grind bullish markets higher that don't exist anymore. There is no more FOMO, no more Tina. There, there's, you know, you need to think outside of the box and you need to dwell on that experience. And whether we like it or Lance, like it or not, Lance, me and you have, <laughs> uh, you know, over 30 years of experience each with all kinds of not just bear markets, but crises of varying degrees. And that is what helps shape our opinions today on what the Fed may or may not do on, you know, and this is, I think, why why we're gravitating to this pension crisis, because we realize this isn't about guilts. This isn't about yields. This is about pensions. And this can easily spread around the world. This is this is not a localized issue. And we've seen other issues like this that that appear to be localized, but there's much bigger ramifications. Yeah. So using leaning on that experience is really helpful in times like this. Well, and again, I think, you know, and again, this goes back to you've got to also be a little bit careful about, you know, kind of the, you know, what you read and what advice you take. Um, Just because, you know, look, this this is look, first of all, let me be clear. Every market environment is different. You know, there's you know, we've been running some charts lately just because, you know, what we've been trying to show is, is that even during downward trending markets, you can have fairly substantial rallies within those within those downtrends. And when markets get very oversold, they typically snap back. So we've been running some charts lately, these analogs of 2000, the 2000.com crash and the similarity to the way the market's behaving now. Uh, there's a very high correlation right now between the 2008 financial market and what's happening now. Um, you know, that there's a very close correlation between now and 1974. So now that doesn't mean that markets are always going to behave the same way because every market environment is different. And this is the trick, right? Is, and what Mike's talking about is trying to, to figure out what is it that changes the dynamic of the market in one direction or the other. And that's where these previous experiences start to pay off. And again, this isn't easy. Just be careful what you read and, you know, do a little bit of research. You know, has this person, whatever you're reading, whatever article you're reading, has this person been through a financial crisis? Have they been through a bear market, a real bear market? In, and importantly, how did they how did they survive that and, and how did they do in it? And there's one guy that's writing articles that went bankrupt during the financial crisis. I'm not sure I want to have him managing my money. Right. So, you know, there's a there's a lot of that stuff out there. Just be careful what you read, where you get your advice from. And look, Mike and I don't know all the answers. We tell you that all the time. Right. We're guessing just like everybody else. But we have some experience to fall back on that helps shape those views. Like Mike said, when we come back. Uh, Mike wants to weigh in on Ben Bernanke and the Nobel Prize winner, uh, something we talked about a little earlier this week. He's got a few comments. Don't go away.
Get daily investment news you can use. Delivered at the speed of the internet at realinvestmentadvice.com. Let's go, girls. What do women want when it comes to finances? Join Richard Rosso and Danny Ratliff for a special ladies' edition lunch and learn what women need from Social Security. Thursday, October 20th at noon. Get the most out of your Social Security benefits. Register now at realinvestmentadvice.com for our next ladies' lunch and learn. What women need from Social Security. Thursday, October 20th at noon with Ratliff and Rosso, realinvestmentadvice.com. The Real Investment Show. So we touched on this earlier this week. Um, and of course, it's just too good of a topic to let go. Sometimes you just need to, 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 to do it again. <laughs> but we talked about Ben Bernanke, of course. Him, he and two other gentlemen won the Nobel Prize for Economic Research. And of course, Ben Bernanke credited with his research of the banking system during the Depression and which formulated his process for bailing out the banks in 2009, 10, 11, 12, you know, so forth and so on. Uh, multiple rounds of QE, etc. Um, so uh, again, it's interesting what the, you know, what the Nobel Prize Academy said was, is that, you know, they are giving him the prize because of his knowledge and his actions to bail out the banking system, saving the entire world from, you know, a financial collapse. Um, as we've talked about before, you know, I'm not sure that we actually made things a lot better, but I don't want to steal Mike's thunder because Mike has a, a few few words to, to say as well. Mike, what do you think about it? I was jealous of you that I was, yeah, I wish I was doing radio that morning after he was announced as the Nobel Prize winner. It, it's just incredibly ironic that Ben Bernanke won a Nobel Prize in economics. Yeah, you know, you can say, yes, he, he, he may have saved the world on 2008. There may have been a couple good things that he did. But when you really think about what he has done for global economies, for global markets, it is the damage is unbelievable. So 2008 occurred because there was too much debt, too much leverage, as we talked about. Mm -hmm. So what did the Fed do? They introduced, they lowered interest rates, encouraging people to take on more debt. They bought treasuries and mortgages. They bailed out banks that had taken on too much debt. So basically they encouraged too much debt and then they bailed out, except for Lehman Brothers and to some degree Bear Stearns, they bailed out everyone else that was taking on too much debt and using over leverage. And you know, is that how you treat a problem by extending it? You know, I'm not saying that they should have let the whole system collapse and they should have let all these banks fail. The Fed does have a responsibility. They are the the bank for the banks. I mean, they, they, they have a role, but but really rewarding the banks, rewarding the executives, rewarding the shareholders of these banks that were clearly offsides is not something to cheer about. Well, right. And so we got past the crisis. We averted disaster, but we put in place this whole system of encouraging more debt to both keep the financial system alive because they really hadn't solved the problems in 2008. They kicked them down the road. 
but also to create economic growth from more debt. So that's where we got QE2 and QE3 and, um, you know, Janet Yellen took the baton from him with QE4 again in 2019, not right. not when the pandemic started. There weren't even problems and they were starting to use QE anytime they thought there was a problem. And that's because there was too much debt and leverage in the system. Right. And then we got a massive, massive dose of QE. Again, it wasn't under Bernanke, but he's the architect for if you have a leverage problem, just add more leverage to it. If you've been drinking all night, well, you need a shot of whiskey to help you uh, feel better. Yeah. <laughs> that, that this is this is what the, the Nobel Prize thought was worth giving a, a prize for. And it's it's not just wrong. It, it's the damage he has caused. And it's not just him, it's many others, but the damage the Federal Reserve has caused to our system by not fixing the problem in 2008, 2009, you know, you don't have to let JP Morgan fail, but those executives should not be with the bank. Those well, stock shareholders should have lost every dime. Right. But this, is, were, but, but this is, but this is something we've talked about before, Mike, there's a, there's a process, the, the FDIC and the banking system, there's a process in place. If JP Morgan failed, Right. There is a process in place for solving that problem, which is basically right. all those accounts get distributed to other banks. Um, you know, the 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 debts get moved or, or, or you know, the, the debt holders take take the hit on it. Right. And we we have a process for dealing with that. And, and you know, the issue wasn't really that we couldn't let those banks fail. It's that those banks are the member banks of the Federal Reserve. They were sitting in the room with. You know, the secretary of the Treasury at the time and, and Ben Bernanke going, you can't let us fail. You, you've got to bail us out. And so they made a choice to bail out their members of the Federal Reserve rather than, you know, letting the, the, the process of letting those firms get redistributed across the across the country and the banking system, which had been much, much healthier at the time, um, would have led to a much stronger banking system. You know, back then, the, the five major banks made up, what, roughly 30 to 40% of the banking system. Today, they're 60. Right. You know, right. so, you know, you don't have a good stable financial system because these major banks are now such a large chunk of the financial system. They truly are uh, the banking system. And so now you've got a real problem that, you know, the next time that J.P. Morgan fails. And again, this is, and, and Mike, this goes back to, to the other point. You know, they say, oh, we do these financial stress tests and these banks are solvent and, and they have plenty of capital. Then if that's the case, why is it every time we have a downturn in the market, we're having to do QE and bail out the banks? We were doing right. repo in 2019 to bail out hedge funds, which had leverage through the banks. So right. they can't be that healthy if we have to keep bailing them out every time they turn around. That's right. And, you know, even if you want to give him a mulligan for 2008, nine, why was why didn't he change things around after we got out of that crisis? Right. Why did he start to, why didn't he keep rates higher? Why did we get more rounds of QE? Why didn't they go to QT and say, and do what Powell's doing now? Powell understands that inflation is the biggest problem facing our nation. And he is raising rates much higher than anyone thought, including Lance and I. He is doing QT at a pretty good clip, although it'll take a while. That should have been done in 2011, 2012 for the last 10 years so that the leverage in this country, the leverage in the financial system is not what it is today. The pension funds in the UK would not have the problems they have today. Now, it would have been a slower economy. It would have been a stock market at lower levels. There would have been a cost, but that cost 
of kicking the can down the road really caught up with us during the pandemic. And now, because we decided to give the can one more big kick, <laughs> it's, you know, that kick only lasted a year or two. And now it's catching up with us again in the form of inflation and higher yields and weaker stock prices and the potential for pension funds. Pension funds should never default. This is the backstop for so many different, you know, so many workers that have worked so long in their life, lives. Um, so you've just kicked the can. He's the architect of kicking the can and he gets a Nobel Prize. Mm -hmm. It's truly unbelievable to me, Lance, that, that that the people that give that prize don't they really it shows they don't have an understanding of the financial system, of the economic system, at least of the United States and how he has unfortunately distorted it. Right. even worse than it was before he took office and laid down the plans, handed those plans over to Yellen and to some degree Powell. Right. Well, no, and it's true. And, and look, and, and since then, what have we gotten out of this is, like I said, you know, the, the five major banks now make up, you know, 60, 65 percent of the entire, you know, financial banking system. Wealth right. inequality has become a major problem. You know, stock buybacks have now accounted for roughly 40 percent of the gains in the stock market because of zero interest rates. You know, we just distorted so much of the financial system now because of those actions, because of quantitative easing, because of zero interest rates being in place for way too long. You know, we've distorted the entire financial system. And, and to your point, you know, Powell's trying to you know, do the right thing here and, and to some degree by fighting inflation. But the risk he runs is lighting the fuse on that massive mountain of debt, which is now substantially greater than it was in 2008. So if you thought the debt risk was bad back in 2008, you know, you talk about corporate debt, we've talked about zombie companies that have to have low rates to refinance debt to stay in business. You know, that's 20, 25% of the Russell 2000 right there. There's a tremendous right. risk of bankruptcies and defaults coming down the pipeline if, if the Fed keeps hiking rates here. And the more the housing market is going to collapse. There's 7% mortgages. Yeah. Who can afford to buy a house other than people with cash, which is just the very upper end of the economy? So, you know, Powell's, you know, it's easy to say Powell's just fighting inflation. Once he fights inflation, it's over. Powell's fighting 20 years of negligence. That's what Powell's fighting. And that negligence was in part because of things Ben Bernanke did during the crisis, even before the crisis. And after the crisis, Ben Bernanke didn't know the 2008 crisis was happening even in March. Yeah, he 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 just said, oh, don't worry, it's just subprime. He didn't understand all the derivatives that were built on subprime, all the the linkages between these banks and the bets that they were making. Yeah. That, and that's that, that, let me give you a quote real quick, because this is July of 2007. He says the global economy continues to be strong, supported by solid economic growth abroad. Overall, the U.S. economy seems likely to expand uh, in the second half of 2007, with growth then strengthening a bit in 2008 to a rate close to the economy's underlying trend. So even in 2007, you know, he's predicting that everything is on an upward trajectory for the economy. And, and again, subprime, not a problem. You know, subprime's contained. Yeah, I, I mean, it's sad, but I think what it really speaks to is the lack of knowledge that most people have, not just the people that give out the Nobel Prize, but I think most people in the media, most investment advisors, most most economists, they don't truly appreciate 
the game that's been played for the last 20 years, the debt that's in society, and the debts that ultimately have to be paid, and ultimately productivity and income to pay off those debts. Absolutely. All right, Mike, thanks so much. Uh, that is, wraps up the show for today. It is the Real Investment Show right here at realinvestmentadvice.com. Get by the website, get our latest blog post, Michael's article out on the website now. Stocks versus bonds. What's a better choice for you uh, as we head into the new year? Uh, that's on the website now, realinvestmentadvice.com. Of course, while you're there, also get our newsletter and subscribe for our daily market commentary. It comes out every day at 7.30. Three minutes on markets and money is coming up and the CPI report out at 7.30. We'll talk about uh, what happens with the markets after that. See you then.